0: Jeremy, size matters, right?
1: Referencing what? (laughs) Let's
0: put it this way. (laughs) You know, so in our formative years, we likely heard directly or indirectly from the media or like in advertising from from teachers or other leaders or from doctors and probably likely our parents and our peers that the size and the shape of our body matters. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that for a long time even recently I did think it really mattered.
0: Yeah. I mean it matters socially and it matters for our health. Right? I mean that's the truth, right? That's what that's what everybody says as you're growing up.
1: I have young children and and oftentimes the the books that you buy for them are meant to educate them in some form or fashion and so we buy these books and a lot of the books recently have been um Focused on things like inclusivity and our skin is different and we're all the same. I don't remember much being available yeah. telling me that all the different size bodies were okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, so how can we know if our body is the right size? You know, so the American medical industry began to use the BMI or the body mass index more consistently in like the 1980s. And curiously, and I'm not trying to step on the toes uh, of content that's likely to be covered more expertly by our esteemed guests, so I won't go too far, um, They changed the cutoffs of what was considered normal abruptly in 1998. So overnight, this action changed about 25 million Americans from a category of normal to overweight. So like, what's the science behind that? Where, where did this measurement even come from? why should we care about it? Should we care about it? I mean, is it even helpful to put our bodies in categories? Do these categorizations actually help us understand and ultimately prevent any disease? And are there other ways of assessing our health that could be more reliable and beneficial? So thankfully, meaningful research exists to provide helpful data on how to navigate these questions. And boy, Jeremy, do we have the expert for it
1: i'm super jacked
0: i know me too uh so come look through the telescope with us friends
1: foreshadowing (laughs) let's do it Welcome to your doctor friends,
0: the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text
1: your doctor friend.
0: My name is Julie Bruni.
1: And I'm Jeremy Allen, And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We
0: want to be your doctor friends. All right. Welcome back. And I would also love to welcome back One of our favorite, favorite, favorite guests of all time, uh, Reagan Chastain. Uh, so Reagan is a speaker, a writer, a researcher, and a board certified patient advocate. She's a multi-certified health and fitness professional, and she certainly is a thought leader in weight science, weight stigma, and in healthcare. Um, she utilizes a background in research methods and statistics. She has a signature mix of humor and hard facts and brings those to healthcare corporate, um, conferences and college audiences. She's the author of the Weight in Healthcare newsletter and the co author of the Health at Every Side or or HAES Health Sheets and editor of the Anthology of the Politics of Size. She's frequently featured as an expert in print, radio, television, and documentary film. And in her free time, she's a triathlete and a marathoner, and she holds the Guinness World Record for the heaviest woman to complete a marathon. She lives in LA with her fiance, Julianne, and their adorable dog. And Reagan, oh, we're so happy to have you back on the show. Thank
1: you. Yes. I'm
2: so happy to be back. This is awesome.
1: (laughs) This is the best hangout ever.
0: (laughs) For real. For our listeners, ones who might be new here, um, be sure to listen to episode 42, which was the question titled, is obesity really a disease? This can serve as a primer for today's topic. Yes.
1: Really recommend going to listen to that, but I have to be, if I'm being completely transparent, this was the episode I was excited about. I think we did, we did the last one because we needed to kind of orient people to the conversation, but we've had this conversation off podcast Mm-hmm. and it is mind-blowing it is one of those conversations where you're like I didn't even think to question it <laughs> And now that you question it you're like I definitely should have been questioning it <laughs> yeah. so I am so excited for our listeners and frankly I'm just excited to hear it again it's one of those movies that I've seen and I can't wait to watch it again
0: awesome thanks so Reagan can you explain to us can you can you teach us please what what is the BMI explain it to us
2: Sure. So BMI is body mass index, and it's essentially your weight in pounds times 703 divided by your height in inches squared. So it's Mm. a fancy height weight ratio that then has been striated to label people as quote unquote, normal weight, quote unquote, underweight, quote unquote, overweight, quote unquote, unquote, obese, et cetera.
0: Who came up with it and why?
2: (laughs) When in the intro, when you said the science behind it, I laughed to myself like that's using the word science pretty loosely. (laughs) Um, So it goes back. I wrote these dates down, actually, because I am t- I can remember statistics all day, but dates do not mm. stay in my head. Um, so 1830-ish, Petale, who who is a statistician, was working on a treatise, and he was trying to find, essentially, the ideal man. And so he was doing all different kinds of measurements, and in his own words, anything that deviated from that ideal would be considered deformed, diseased, and monstrous. Yeah. And he was pretty darn sure that the ideal man was a cis-European white dude, because that's all he included in this uh, study that he, quote unquote, study that he did, right? So he published, and it, the BMI calculation is just kind of a footnote in his work. Then in 1943, a metropolitan life insurance company decided to create some tables of height and weight. And so they calculated them actually using the average heights and weights of men who had been accepted for life insurance. And so those, again, mostly white dudes. Um, and they decided that 20% above or below that average weight was going to indicate a poor risk. Mm-hmm. So 20% being kind of a round number. And these tables were very specific, right? It was, if what is your frame? And then this is the the like weight you should be at. Um, In 72 then, Ansel Keys, who you may remember from the starvation study, Mm -hmm. uh, decided to revive Ketelay's work. He was looking at different scales to use and he looked at Ketelay's work and he did a bit of a more diverse look at it. So he included Japanese farmers and fishermen. He included Bantu workers in South Africa, um, executives and college students in Minnesota, Mm-hmm. rail workers in Italy and the US, and then he also included rural populations in Italy and Finland, so a bit more diverse. Mm. Um, and he's, his he's what he said about it was basically, look, it's as good as anything else that we've got. <laughs> so he wasn't like, y'all, this is terrific. He was just like, eh, as, re- as researchers, I think we want a way to striate this. This is as good as whatever we have. But he also said that the use of BMI to label individuals, um, was scientifically indefensible.
1: Hmm. Meaning not okay.
2: Yes, meaning not okay. He was talking about it as a population measurement um, as was Ketelay, though Ketelay's was coming from a racist and really uh, problematic background. So in 78, Bray comes around and he says, okay, well, we've got this BMI loosely based on the 1959 metropolitan life tables. Let's say the cutoff for overweight is gonna be 25 and the cutoff for quote unquote obese is going to be 30. Mm-hmm. Then in 1981, Garrow was like, oh, you know, what would be cool. Let's actually create what he called grades. And we now call classes of quote obesity. And so he divided it up, but he literally said, I'm quoting the choice of boundaries between grades is arbitrary and can be mm-hmm. justified only on grounds of convenience. Yeah. So again, what these folks are looking at is, well, we're gonna, we're trying to research and we're trying to classify people. So we're just using this height weight ratio to classify people. And that's problematic on its face, but none of them said, you know, this is a really great individual measure of health. But then in 1985, there was an NIH panel was that was like, oh, let's actually do codify this index for people. And they actually initially set the uh, the BMI for quote overweight at 27.8 for men, mm-hmm. 27.3 for women. Then in 1998, and this is what you were talking about, Julie, Mm -hmm. so an NIH panel is committed and they recommend lowering the BMI category for what's considered a quote-unquote normal or quote-unquote healthy weight. So they shaved about 15, 20 pounds off of a normal weight, again, about 25 million Americans overweight literally overnight. The Mm -hmm. thing to know about that panel, there were nine people on it, seven of the nine had direct ties to the weight loss industry. Mm -hmm. And the chairman was a former executive director and a current board member of Weight Watchers. And so they basically made them, they increased their market by 20 million, 25 million people overnight. And they also um, were ready with press releases. So the next day, all these press releases, millions of Americans don't know they're overweight. And it's like, well, because they weren't yesterday. Yeah. So yeah, little history there.
1: And that's where we are today. Those categories from 1998 exist currently, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay.
2: Although there are various groups trying to finesse them in different ways.
1: I think I'd like to make another small plug for anybody at this point asking the question of like, why do we even care about categorizing people to go back to episode 42 to talk about is obesity really a disease um, just to kind of orient you there because I even the whole time you're sitting there I'm like well why did we start doing this in the first place it's yeah. like that didn't seem to be a reason to do it but then we did it anyways Is does that feel off in any form or fashion
2: yeah like there was you know people were like what's fatness and the I mean met life's goal was to make more money Mm -hmm. And I think you'll find as you learn more about BMI, if you're out there listening, that somebody making more money has a lot to do with almost all of the decisions and discussion around BMI, right? When we really dig down, it's not about patient safety. It's not about increasing health and wellness among people. It's really about a profit driver and how it can be used in that way.
0: Yeah, exactly that. Like, how can the BMI cutoffs, and this is going to be a big question, so we can spend as much time on it as we want, but how would these BMI cutoffs create situations where people can be vulnerable to discrimination? I mean, maybe if you can just want to take it like looking at just in healthcare and in, in medical care delivery.
2: Sure. So within healthcare delivery, BMI-based cutoffs are a thing. Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes it depends on the surgeon or the facility or the insurance company sometimes it's a bigger group like for transplants the cutoffs are very specific and it's incredibly difficult to fight that mm. um, but for for example a joint replacement uh, it may be one surgeon will say yep I'll absolutely do your surgery and another will say nope I have a hard cutoff at you know five points below and so people this is also happening happening a lot with gender affirming procedures these are the folks I'm hearing a lot from so joint procedures and gender affirming procedures are the biggest groups that I hear from who say I'm being denied based on BMI, but also infertility care Mm -hmm. is a common place for people to be discriminated against based on size. And basically what it does is create this lazy medicine that says, well, we created this whole system, all the research, the tools, the best practices, the training based on thin bodies. So based on our outcome data, we're not as good at doing this for fatter bodies, so what we're gonna do is just not let fat people have healthcare. Instead of saying, we've gotta get better at this, we've gotta do some training. And also the, the research that looks at outcome data t- tends to ignore research that doesn't agree that higher weight people have worse outcomes, right? Or they don't look at the fact that higher weight people were made to, to wait longer to get the surgery so their condition mm-hmm. was more advanced. And it instead says, well, their outcomes are worse without saying, well, yeah, they started off worse. Right. 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 So there's a lot of, of that, but there's direct BMI based discrimination that happens within healthcare. There's also what I refer to as practitioner weight distraction where they calculate, you know, they take your weight. When you go in, they calculate your BMI. And now it doesn't matter what your presenting complaint is. You're going to get a talk about weight loss, Mm -hmm. perhaps to the exclusion of any other treatment that a thin person with the exact same presenting complaint would get.
1: I can hear like a joint surgeon saying to me, okay, BMI is flawed, I'll accept it. Mm -hmm. But I still have a study that says somebody with a BMI over 40 has an increased risk of an infection. How do I ignore that? What would you say back?
2: So I would say, let's not ignore it. Let's say, how can we deal with it, right? What support does that person need during and after surgery to help reduce infection? What support do they need if they do get infection? The fact that someone might have a higher risk of complications Should it mean that that person has to stay in pain and suffer Mm -hmm. in the case of, for example, a joint surgery, right? And have their mobility reduced unnecessarily because their complications might be higher? And then in the, the bigger picture, it's how do we get better at doing surgery on higher weight people? And those are the questions because of BMI based denials that don't get asked. They simply say, We don't. If you want surgery, you become a thinner patient. Right. And there's also research that shows that, in fact, as you might suspect, weight loss prior to surgery does not necessarily lead to better outcomes, right? If chronically undernourishing patients prior to surgery improved outcomes, we do that for everybody. Yeah.
1: So I never thought to, I mentioned this earlier, I never thought to question BMI. It just never came to me to ever do that. I'm a questioning person. So it's amazing to me that it never did, but it Mm -hmm. was taught to us from an early age. I mean, we went in to see doctors and we were put on a curve and then that has its own issues with kids and BMIs. And we'll talk about that in a Mm -hmm. second, but you know, all the way up until you get to medical school and you're taught to classify people by BMI and and every disease that you see more or less as, you know, this is a risk factor for having an increased BMI is a risk factor for a certain disease. And I just, I never thought to question what is BMI and does it, is, is it accurate? So, so that in its own right is kind of scary that, that we're using this cutoff that I I think the vast majority of people listening who haven't either been familiar with people's work like yours, or had this conversation with us, they're going to say, I didn't realize that that's where that that came from. My follow-up question to you is, okay, so, so the, the background of BMI is pretty awful, like the way it came around to be a health measure. But as it exists now, what does the data say on whether it is good at looking at our individual health? Because I'm sure people have looked at that.
2: It's, so a, a lot of people have looked at that, and a lot of that research, it's important to know, gets funded by the weight loss industry. And what mm-hmm. happens in that research is we get an uncritical correlation that says higher weight people have a higher incidence of whatever the health issue is. And then we stop and say, obviously, being higher weight is causing the higher risk, and obviously, making them lower weight would reduce their risk. None of that is scientific thinking. That is like failure freshman research class level thinking.
0: Yeah,
2: But that is how... It's like, we know that, for example, cis male pattern baldness has a much higher, folks with male pattern baldness have a much higher risk of cardiac incidence. If we treated it like weight, we would be telling those people they need to grow hair. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> right. And we'd have a whole national war on baldness and we'd want them to do dangerous drugs and surgeries to grow hair so they could reduce their cardiac risk. It's not scientific thinking. And when you, it's a bit complicated because in health research, we use correlation all the time. Mm -hmm. Right, causal mechanisms are difficult to come by with something so complicated as the human body, but it's still not responsible to use correlation without actually investigating confounding variables. We know, for example, that weight stigma, that weight cycling or yo yo dieting, and that healthcare inequalities are correlated with the exact same uh, health issues that get blamed on weight. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And the research that studies these and says, well, see, people with a BMI of this have a higher risk of this. Don't even talk about, let alone control for those variables.
1: Yeah. Based on the billboards I see driving to work, I think the hair loss industry is it may may like they they are trying to stamp out some disease. It doesn't. I haven't <laughs> I, I, I haven't I haven't seen one that says we're preventing heart disease yet. But now that they're going to listen to our podcast, I that I'm going to see a billboard. But there's like 90% of the billboards I see on the way to my office are are hair regrowth. So. Um, and
2: for sure, I I just want to say I don't mean to say that folks who deal with hair loss aren't subject to discrimination because they absolutely sure. are. Yeah, but it's not, yeah. they're not saying like since you have hair loss and a higher risk of cardiac incidents, obviously it's because you're bald and obviously growing hair would solve it.
0: Would fix that problem. Yeah. And that would reduce your risk of the other, yeah. The other health concerns. Understood. Yeah.
1: How do we measure it in kids? Cause I don't think a lot of people maybe even know this.
2: Yeah. You get shown a even, curve.
1: You're like, look, right. you're great on this curve.
2: <laughs> yeah, just when you thought it couldn't get any less scientific. So kids are graded based on percentiles of CDC growth charts of more than 20 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's a very snapshot sort of situation. So it does not take into account at all the way kids actually grow.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So we see them, they grow out, they grow up, they grow out, they grow up, Like that's part of the growth process. And so that the way that we look at percentiles doesn't take that into account. Also, when you're dealing with percentiles, you're forcing, like, somebody's always going to be in the 95th percentile. That's how yeah. percentiles work. Right. And so, like, that's norm. We would expect a normal distribution, just like we see with height in kids. But when we've got this obsession with height weight ratio and with what percentile kids are falling into, then we start messing with kids' weight and in ways that we're not clear whether or not they impact actual growth
1: long-term. Clarify what you just said, the percentile. So it's defined as what percentile is considered obese at that age.
2: Yeah. So it's the 95th percentile. And again, this is trying, there are various groups with a lot of diet industry backing, trying to finesse this, but typically it's 95th percentile is considered like quote unquote obese.
1: So we're taking... Let's just use a hundred kids for an example. And there's going to be 95 of them that are going to be under and the fifth that are the largest, the five that are the largest, no matter what size they are, are considered obese. Exactly. Okay. And then you just said also that the data is like 20 or 30 years old. Yeah. So, or yeah. however many years old. So, this is where the the stat that if I'm remembering straight we're like I don't know 60 percent of kids are now in the 95th percentile and you're like that doesn't make any statistical sense type of thing
2: yeah because you're not looking at like you have to look at 20 to 30 years ago what was how was childhood hunger then right were kids well-fed are we looking at underfed kids are we looking at differences kids are also taller now like that's is this part so without looking at that, just judging kids, like your size is correct or incorrect based on what percentile you're in of these kids we looked at 20 or 30 years ago. Like, again, there's just a lack of science there.
1: Yeah. It seems to me that no matter what, there should only always be 5% of kids who are (laughs) considered obese at any given moment based on the way that we use percentiles. Yes,
2: but you're talking about as compared to kids 20 or 30 years ago,
1: right? So it allows kids kids to be obese.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So if kids now are bigger than kids 20 or 30 years ago, and they're the the growth charts are more inclusive than they used to be, but they're still not. They used to be just straight up white kids in the 50s was -hmm. what we were judging every kid on. But now they're a bit more inclusive, but still not fully inclusive. But yeah, it's a it's a, a bit of a racket.
0: It's a great term, racket. I would agree. I would wholeheartedly.
1: It's so confusing. Yeah. It's like, yes. Like Even and just talking about it just upsets me because I'm like, why didn't I think that this was so confusing before? Like I just like bought it and moved forward. Yeah. Well, it's,
2: it sounds very sciencey. Yeah. It's a mathematical equation. It's an index. It's you know used all over the place. So there's no reason to question it. Yeah. right? Unless somebody says, Hey, actually, did you know about this? And the, even the committee, it's not like, Hey, the diet industry committee, it's, Oh, the NIH committee
0: mm-hmm.
2: changed what's considered a normal weight. Sure. So it all sounds very sciencey. It's all very couched in organizations. We should be able to trust. And the NIH, I should point out um, the two committee members who were part of the diet industry said they were very pressured to match the who measurements But the WHO measurements were also funded and created by an organization that is made up of people who are, who sell weight loss. Mm. So like the WHO, the NIH, all of these organizations are, have all of these people with conflicts of interest that are never discussed. And then it sounds really sciencey and if there's math and you're like, whatever. And so it's not surprising to me that people don't question. it. It's not surprising to me that well-meaning people are still kind of clinging to it, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't make it any more scientific or helpful.
0: It's also very easy to measure. Like you don't have to think very much about it. You have two numbers and then you create another number out of those two numbers. That's all. And you can find it. It like, so it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of critical thinking to then create this number that then you're going to base large, you know, sweeping judgments about people's risk factors and what, what medical care they should receive and not receive and, and, uh, and, and making broad generalizations about their health health outcomes based on something that took you two and a half seconds to calculate. It's easy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And re- that's part of the reason I think why it has really taken hold is that for researchers trying to categorize people, usually you've got weight and height. So yeah. they don't have to like, look farther than that. They don't have to have, like, any kind of other measurement. They've got weight and height. They can calculate BMI. It's done. And so I see a lot of researchers defending it, not because they think it's a great measurement, but because from a researcher perspective, it's just easy to get. Right. Don't take that away from us. Research is hard enough as it is. Yeah, we've got enough trouble without having to figure out how to classify people. It's, you know, so yeah, it's just an easy measurement and easy to calculate, easy to get.
0: Do you think there are... Better ways of measuring fatness or body composition, like I mean, I will get into like
2: yeah.
0: why even bother doing that at all. Yeah. But like, does other do other ways exist that you think could be more more valid?
2: So, I mean, if you're just trying to figure out like what is someone's body composition, then yeah, there's like DEXA sure. scanning. There's you know you can use MRI sometimes. Like there are there are different ways to get a more precise bit of information if for gotcha. some reason you needed it as like, to what someone's like fat to lean mass is gotcha um so there are there are in fact now very exact previously before like dexa scanning they were trying to use like archimedian principles and like just dunking people in water and yeah, figuring out displacement right. and making guesses about lean body like there's been a lot of kind of nonsense calculations um some people suggest waist circumference measurements mm. um, as, as a measure of risk, waist to hip ratio has been suggested. Um, but as you said, mm-hmm. all of these are methods of trying to pathologize people based on shared size mm-hmm. rather than shared symptomology or cardiometabolic profile.
0: Yeah. It's like, how can I measure you the way that I look at you or I can wrap tape around you or I can make you hold or stand on this bioimpedance machine, Yeah, but has calibers, nothing to yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, that calipers yeah that was the, the the word that was escaping me um or as opposed to actual n- n- harder to measure things but yeah but but symptoms and you know yeah we'll get into that but yeah so th- i
1: i think it's important ahead. to actually get into it right now reagan yeah because I, I think that you've brought it up so because i think that many people many people people listening right now would say, I thought waist circumference was a good way to do it. I thought it was better than BMI. Hmm. I thought, you know, like people told me that that race ratio was, was important. So let's talk about that for a second. Like, why is it bad?
2: Yeah. So again, what all of these things try to do is figure out a way to sort of measure fatness as a measure of risk factor. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what I think is important is that, again, this is classifying people based on a shared body size or shared amount of body fat rather than a shared symptomology or cardiometabolic profile. So there are fat people who obviously don't have health issues that are correlated with being fat. There are thin people who do have health issues that are correlated with being fat. And so what we have to ask is why are we doing this? Because currently we're doing it because then we recommend to those people that they change their body size Mm -hmm. and we have no good ways of doing that. So about a hundred years of research shows that intentional weight loss has about a 95% failure rate. Diet drugs do not have a better uh, rate of success, but do have much higher risk of complications Mm -hmm. and weight loss surgeries have significantly more risks and also have high rates of failure. And so my what Weight Neutral Health looks at is couldn't we just support people's health in their body size mm-hmm. rather than trying to characterize people based on their size so that we can suggest that they somehow change their size. What if we just gave everybody with the same sort of symptomology or cardiometabolic profile, the same health support?
1: Really interesting. So if I'm going to translate and you tell me if I'm accurate, hmm. the, the, the concept here is that if somebody is going to get a health assessment, whether it be preventatively or because they have a health condition and we're trying to make them healthier, the current concept would be is trying to measure their body in some form of matter, whether it be through BMI or through weight circumference. And all of that is doing is looking at the overall size of their body, which we know they can't change based on the research that you talked about and probably is not 100% associated with any of these, 100% is actually too generous, is not associated 100 times out of 100 with I just said the same thing again,
0: <laughs> <Try it> again, <laughs> Jeremy
1: is <laughs> not these. We know that measuring that does not mean that it is associated with them having a health problem. And therefore we should just skip that part of it and then get to the health problems that they may have or may not have and work on trying to improve those. Am I yes. uh, in the ballpark?
2: You totally are. And one thing I want to point out is that weight, the failure of weight loss attempts is not benign. And this is where I think people go wrong or misunderstand, because people will say, "Well, yeah, smoking is hard to quit too," but you're like you just gotta keep trying, right? But a smoker is healthier for every cigarette they don't smoke. Also, smoking is a single discrete habit, whereas body size is an incredibly complex thing. But weight cycling is associated with almost all of the same health issues with which being higher weight is associated. Weight cycling, being yo-yo dieting, right? You lose mm-hmm. weight, you gain it back. Um, and in fact, Bacon and Afremow found that the entirety of excess mortality that got associated with quote obesity in both Framingham and the NHANES could be attributed to weight cycling. Yeah. And so it's not just that we like medically tell people their bodies are wrong and then tell them that healthcare means making their bodies a different size but we're prescribing something that fails the vast majority of the time. And that actually creates the health issues that we're telling them we'll solve through this attempt.
1: How much have you seen the use of things like um, DEXA scans and such in the work that you are doing? Meaning I have personally seen it in the performance world where they're trying to work on professional athletes and I'm not going to quote or know whether that data is good either, but I don't think that they're working in the same ways that you are seeing these measurements used. Are you seeing DEXA used for the same thing in your area?
2: Uh, no, because it's expensive.
1: Yeah. Okay. It costs too much money. <laughs> right, You know,
2: it's cheap measuring people's height and weight and doing a math calculation you could do on your phone. Right. Um, so yeah, no Dexa scan is not typically used. I, so I got my first fitness certification in 1996 and calipers were a thing then. Like yeah. I've been trained multiple times on how to use calipers to determine body fat. So like that can be more likely because it's, it's more complicated to learn, but it's still cheap. Um, but yeah, like DEXA scanning, that kind of thing, I don't see used a lot yet. Yeah.
0: Um, I would love Reagan, if you could walk us through the new clarifying policy that the AMA, the American Medical Association adopted very recently to address the role of BMI in medicine.
2: Yeah. Happy to. Mm. So the AMA came up with this policy and they said, oh, and what's extra grating to me is that there have been people doing this work, like since long before I was born, right, who have been saying for decades, BMI is racist, BMI is very limited in individual use. And the AMA put out a policy that said these things, but kind of like they had discovered them. (laughs) And I was like, you're like, this is beyond fashionably late to the party, y'all. Like this is, we, we've known this for a long time. And so they they recommended using it less, but then they were like, instead, we should use all of these other ways to pathologize bodies based on fatness. Yeah. And so a lot of people, even people within weight and neutral health community celebrated it because it sounded on the surface, like they were saying, yeah, BMI is a terrible measure. And it is, but they didn't even abandon it. Right. They were like, it's not like, don't, just don't use it so much yeah. and use it with these other things.
0: Fold it into other crap. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then keep doing the same stuff and keep pathologizing people's bodies. Yeah. yeah
2: but in more ways than we did before. And so <laughs> spread it out my, a little
0: bit. Yeah. yeah.
2: For a hot minute, I got excited because there's a line yeah. that says that BMI should not be used as a sole determinant for appropriate insurance uh, reimbursement. Yeah. Hmm. And so for literally 0.2 seconds, I was like, they're saying that we should stop BMI based denials. And then I remembered that first of all, the weight loss industry gives millions to the AMA Mm -hmm. through their foundation and that the AMA has been aligned with the weight loss industry for quite some time. And that is when I realized that actually what they're trying to do is get rid of BMI minimums for diet drugs and surgeries. And this has long been a priority of companies that manufacture diet drugs and of the folks who profit from the surgeries is that there shouldn't be a minimum BMI for insurance reimbursement. And, um, And I think that that is what's playing out, I just was looking at a study today to write about where they were like, BMI vastly underestimates the number of people who are quote unquote obese, Mm. right? And so this is, I think, like it's a a smidge of good that is far overshadowed by a ton of bad that's gonna come out of this. And it's just a reaffirmation of of pathologizing bodies based on size and a huge diet industry marketing ploy. Gross. Yeah. Super gross.
0: Um, other than, you know, like body shape, size, fat percentage, lean mass, whatever, like get rid of all of that. I mean, really the crux of the argument here is what other measures of health have been studied that are, that are good or maybe better predictors of disease risk. Like take, take the BMI, take your weight, take all of it, flush it down the toilet. What would you recommend?
2: so there's a lot and it's complex yeah but we know for example if experience of oppression right social determinants of health yep um affluency socioeconomic status and then when we look because often I just want to be clear that we are so commonly just looking at behaviors Mm -hmm. and that's something I look at and I'm just about to talk about it but to be clear the environment that we live in, the experiences that we have, our ability to access healthcare, right? In the States, it's a total disaster
0: yeah.
2: trying to access healthcare. Um, so all of those things play huge parts and they are more or less out of our control based on how much privilege and how much money we have. But when we look at just straight up behaviors, for example, there's good observational longitudinal data that shows that health supporting behaviors are a much better predictor of current and future health than is size or weight loss. Mm. So you look at way et al, Matheson et al, the Cooper Institute Longitudinal Studies, um, Gazer and Engadi that just came out in 2021 that did a huge like massive review of data around cardiorespiratory fitness and physical activity and health um, and found interesting conclusions, including that intentional weight loss was not consistently associated with lower mortality Mm. as is assumed right? We've got this, the thing that is, I think, really hard to wrap your head around is this is all based on an assumption that yeah. if we can make fat people look like thin people, they'll have the same health outcomes. Yeah, It's not proven. And that's what, when I, so I got into this on a literature review, looking for the best diet for myself, like almost 20 years ago now, mm-hmm. No, 20 years ago now. Um, and so I obviously read that literature and realized that as a fan of logic and math, weight loss was not going to be something I was going to pursue. But the thing that blew my mind was there was no big study of people who had successfully lost weight that showed that their health outcomes were the same as thin people. Yeah. Right. Mostly because there aren't enough of them (laughs) to get a good study going, but that like that completely blew my mind that we're all, this is all based on an assumption. And again, it all goes back to that body mass index. If you can wedge yourself into this height weight ratio, you'll be healthy. Even though people in this height weight ratio are not healthy, it's fat people are constantly uncritically told often by health care professionals to lose weight, to prevent or cure health issues that thin people get. So there's like a whole logic break here that we have to start to face up to.
1: Habits are very hard to break i think that that is very well established at all ages and it seems that within society individual at an individual level we have a very hard time leaving the habit of going back to weight and body size and the way i look in the mirror matters and that no matter what is recommended on how to be healthy it always comes back to how does that affect how do i look mm-hmm. because how do i look affects how do i feel and how do i feel affects almost everything and so I, I think as somebody listening to this episode and thinking, okay, well, let's pretend for a moment I buy all of this and that BMI doesn't matter. My body size doesn't matter. I still want to be healthy. What can I control? I want to control something. Yeah. So That's, what can someone control?
2: <laughs> this is a super fair question. And I, I'll, I want to point out weight stigma is real.
1: Yeah.
2: And it impacts fat people's lives in every aspect. And we can all learn, you know, to appreciate our bodies. We can learn resilient skills, but you cannot self-love your way out of systemic oppression. Yep. I can love my body all day and night, but I won't fit into an MRI that wasn't made to accommodate me.
0: Yep.
2: Right. So there, there are realities of living in a stigmatized body, and I don't want to brush that over or, or suggest that, you know, achieving some kind of health will solve that. I also want to say health is not an obligation. It's not a barometer of worthiness. It's not entirely within our control. And it's a really gooey, amorphous concept that changes over time. We tend to want to have like a, like something you could throw a dart and hit and be like, that's healthy. Mm -hmm. And everyone else is not. And so it's, for me, it's not about a measure that we put people in and out of, but rather like somebody's individual priorities and circumstances and how they want to support their body and making sure they have access to the things they want to do that. But in terms of what we can control, or at least control a bit more health supporting behaviors are certainly something we can control more than our body size yeah right so are we managing stress are we getting enough sleep are we drinking water are we like matheson at all is a study that looked at four healthy habits so they looked at um five or more servings of fruits and vegetables a Mm -hmm. day um up to two drinks a day for cis men and up to one drink a day for cis women not smoking and exercise up to at least 12 times per month And they found that people who participated in all four of those habits had the same health hazard ratio, regardless of size. Yeah. And they also found that even one habit compressed the difference in health hazard ratio significantly, right? So those are four simple things. There's a lot of privilege in being able to afford five servings of fruits and vegetables a day and being able to prepare, like there's a lot within that. Um, But when we look at what we can control more focusing on health supporting behaviors rather than focusing on using everything as a way to try to manipulate our body size. Yeah. Gives us more control and more likelihood of success.
0: Yeah. And, and systemically looking at how do we support health supporting behaviors? (laughs) Like, how do we make that easier for people to do? Um, and make those the like make that an actual choice that is feasible and reachable and, Fathomable, I think, in some situations, and I think that maybe we should. That that's where Reagan. I think you're steering this conversation, and I'm loving it.
2: Yeah, Gazer and Angadi actually, in their conclusions, they they posited that people might be more likely to participate because they looked at again cardiorespiratory fitness and physical activity, and they yeah. found it to be a much better picture of health. And one of the things they said was that. People might be more likely to participate if they were told by healthcare practitioners about the myriad benefits of physical activity outside of weight loss. Yeah. Because what we get told as fat people is exercise makes you healthy because it makes you thinner.
0: Yeah.
2: And neither of those things are true. Right. Yeah. And more importantly, the benefits, but of the benefits of, of these health supporting behaviors come directly. And what's going to happen for most people is they're going to participate in them with the hopes that will change their body size. And they're going to lose weight short-term because that's what almost everybody does. Mm -hmm. Then they're going to plateau and start to regain weight. And like, it's hard enough to make time to whatever, hit the gym or be involved in movement without thinking it's not actually helping you.
0: Yeah,
2: You know, or being told like, I I still pre COVID when I used to go to the gym would be told like, if I was doing cardio, it was, oh, cardio won't help you lose weight. You've got to lift weights. And if I was lifting weights, oh, lifting weights won't help you lose weight. You've got to do cardio (laughs) all by people who I had opinions I had not solicited. Of course. Right. So it's, it's all the misinformation that is the problem. And again, that goes back to BMI that your goal should be this height weight ratio rather than supporting your health.
0: Yeah.
1: I went and got my own personal physical and got weighed and had them tell me what my BMI was. And I was like, why are we doing this? we should just pull these scales out of here i don't know why we're weighing anybody and it was it, there was I, I think we had a conversation with our fellow at one point and there are a couple times where it makes sense like if you have somebody who has heart failure yeah. and you're trying to see if they're retaining fluid like that's sure. a good use of seeing if they have weight or when yeah. we do athletes right and yeah. we have before an after a marathon
0: yeah
2: when they yeah. go run yeah. when
1: they go run for three hours and we want to know how much to hydrate them at the end like sure. they, like weight can't but it's all Wait, almost like julie how we use our our whoop data at this point which is mm-hmm. basically i don't my numbers mean nothing to your numbers it's just right. all based on my numbers right like it's comparing me to me over a period of time and saying listen you're a little off from where you were before has anything changed yeah and not telling me you need to be this number because that other person is like that number and that person's going to be healthier than you yeah, and it's
2: interesting when you ask you know okay well you, when you say you want to be this or BMI, like what do you think that will do for you? Mm-hmm. And it's usually one of three buckets, right? It's prevent or cure, health issue, increase mobility or ability or escape weight stigma. Yeah. So the third one is obviously a separate thing because you're having to tell somebody like you're in an oppressed body and oppressed society. Yeah. But the first two, it's like, do you think that there are people at your target BMI who don't have arthritis, who don't have, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a trip because we're, like so inundated as patients so like we didn't patients don't get the idea that they should lose weight out of nowhere right Mm -hmm. right and so they're going in thinking like this is the thing and also my favorite thing that happens to me is somebody will say well I don't want to be thin necessarily I just want to be the weight that I was when I felt the best and I'll say cool when was that and I'll say when I was 19 yeah Yeah. and I'll say how old are you now and they will say I'm 57 and I'll say okay so, weight might not be the only difference. Right. Like, but we're so fat people are told anything that's bad in our life can be solved through weight loss.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. And it's, it really is a trip. And so, it's not surprising when, like, when doctors say, no, I, I'm not worried about your weight. I want to talk about these things. And patients are really incredulous because, like, that's what they've been trained to do. It's a, it's, I can imagine from your side of it, really tricky conversations to have.
1: Yeah. I would love to jump into, Julie's favorite category of the myths and misinformation about BMI, you have a BMI of 45, so you're not going to do well with a knee replacement.
2: False. Um, People of all sizes have all kinds of outcomes with knee replacement. And a big part of this that I want to break down is the idea that if a higher weight person doesn't have as good of an outcome as a thin person, then somehow they don't deserve care.
0: Yeah.
2: Getting somebody out of pain, getting somebody the mobility they want is worth it, even if they are not as out of pain or don't have as much mobility as a thinner person. So the problem here is the comparison at all. Yeah, it's interesting, and I feel I feel like
0: I'm trying to be aware of my own bias here because this is the field in which Jeremy and I work, so this comes up a lot. But I, I'd be curious to ask. You know, I think my understanding of BMI cutoffs seem like you mentioned to gender affirming care. Um, but I tend to think of them more of like as a surgical thing, which is not necessarily true. I mean, you talked about, um, fertility treatment and that kind of stuff too. I think a lot of endocrine stuff would make sense that people would be discriminated against based on their BMI. Um, but, uh, I, it's, I wonder if it's because joint replacement surgery is still considered, you know, it is an elective procedure. It's not like you're, you're at risk of death immediately. If you don't have this surgery, it's not like your appendix is about to burst. And so, Oh, sorry, your BMI is 50. So we're not going to take your appendix out. But I bet I, I would imagine that there are likely shades of gray within uh, other surgical interventions that I'm just not aware of because it's not something I see every single day. Cause I don't work in general surgery. I work in sports medicine or orthopedics. So
2: Yeah. Yeah. So one interesting case is, and this happened to somebody who I work with as a patient advocate. Mm. Um, She was having a a gallbladder attack to use the colloquial. went in um, to the emergency room and they offered her surgery that night. And she said, I want to see if I can weather it because I'd rather have the surgery planned. Mm. And they were like, yeah, no problem. She weathered the initial attack went in and they said, oh no, you can't have it out. We have a BMI limit. (laughs) So they were willing to do it with whatever surgeon and anesthesiologist happened to be around, Yeah. but they were not willing. And another thing that happens is people get denied the surgery they want and then referred to weight loss surgery, which is more risky, fewer Mm -hmm. prognostics, less long-term data. And now they have to have two surgeries instead of one. Yeah. Right. So there's a, there's a lot of shades and it, it's this idea, like the way that we talk about kind of elective surgery too, like. Getting someone out of pain and increasing their mobility is a worthy goal. Yes. Even if they won't have the best possible like they gave Shaq knee surgery. Right? That dude definitely caused his knee problem. That dude definitely was going back to a quote lifestyle that was going to make his knee surgery uh possibly less effective. But sure. they gave him knee
1: surgery. What yeah. was his BMI? Somebody calculate that real quick. <laughs> no, um, I don't know. I bet that's... you it's Googleable, which is stupid. Probably. Um I I was I'm completely like guilty of that Reagan early in my career. I I was very guilty of saying like, I can't get you to qualify for a knee replacement. So I think that your weight loss surgery has to be viewed like a knee replacement because Mm -hmm. I I wasn't necessarily, you can go get that and then go get your knee replacement, but more so like that is the only option I have at this point to help you to help decrease your pain. And it's it's wrong. I've evolved as a physician because I've learned more, but I just think that, that I know that that happens because I did it and I consider yeah. myself up to date on things. So yeah. um, there's still it's probably a lot best of people
2: practice. Do- yeah. And it's wild, right? Like, Hey, you have a perfectly, you have a diseased knee, but we're not going to fix that. What we're going to do is take your perfectly healthy digestive system and create disease. Yeah. That will be a better solution. And it's, I, you know, like I said, I really well-meaning people are doing this stuff because it's yeah. standard practice and it's what we're told is the right thing to do.
1: I don't know if it's outside the scope, but I just feel like commenting quickly on the fact that, that part of the reason surgeons are not taking on this extra risk for an elective surgery is because of how they are punished for correct bad outcomes. Right. Yeah.
2: I'm in the middle of a project, as you all know, to interview surgeons to talk about this. And I think I ha- I'm i not going to announce it publicly yet. I'm still vetting, but I think I have a, a, like a, a possible method to make this better. Mm-hmm. But yeah, surgeons get punished based on their outcome data. Right, so if they have a higher rate than expected of complications, then they can risk everything from compensation issues to to promotion issues to loss of privileges. Yeah, um, and it's different for different specialties, right? So uh, I didn't know this until I started this, but um, people who do cardiovascular cardiothoracic surgery mm-hmm. they have to publish their results. It's required. For others, it's like a either within the hospital thing or just a personal thing. Sure. Right. So it it really varies. And this is, again, another part of the problem with US medicine. Um, But there's also the way that uh, payment works, right? I talked with a surgeon who was like, yeah, no, you know, higher weight people have more complications than like, why would you want to deal with that? And I was like, I mean, to get your patient out of pain, maybe like, I didn't say it because I, you know, I was doing the interview, but it's an interesting thing that that's kind of just how things go. Like they're not gonna get paid extra for the extra work. And so the the one point of view is why would you do extra work?
1: And you you aren't interviewing me, but I do think that in the situation I think the way that the human psyche and brain works is that we generally very much remember and take on the negative outcomes far more than the positive outcomes. And so if you were to say to me that 2% of the obese BMI category of patients were going to have a complication and 1% of non-obese was going to have a complication... I'm going to remember the two bad outcomes and think, I don't want to have to deal with another bad outcome because of how much I remember those. And I don't even remember the 98 good ones because the good ones just moved on and I don't remember them. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, it, it's not right. I mean, you, you could have helped 98 people, <laughs> yeah. um, but it's not the way that the brain works. And so I think again, uh, among other things that have already been mentioned, I think that that is a big factor that the, the people that do have complications not only create more work and, create a lot of like you know like that person's not doing well yeah, like that is a huge emotional it, it, it most clinicians who want to do good for people take that on and they take it on hard yeah. um and so i think that that's a a factor
2: yeah and i think the way that our system works and what it teaches us to do which is blame the patient's body keeps us stuck yeah yep right when i i do Predominantly as a speaker, my main audience is healthcare practitioners and mainly physicians, right? Mm -hmm. And so we talk about that, get mad that you don't have what you need to take care of your patient. Don't get mad that a fat patient exists or needs completely predictable healthcare. Get mad that the research doesn't exist that included fat people. Get mad that the tools don't exist that included fat people. Get mad that your MRI doesn't accommodate fat people. Get mad at the system rather than having that reflexive reaction when a fat patient walks through the door of like, oh, like this is going to be so hard. Um, and it, and the system encourages that and encourages practicing stereotypes instead of medicine,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? The multiple times doctors have told me to start an exercise program during marathon training,
0: <laughs> right? Boo. And I'm not the one,
2: like, you don't want to do it with me because we're, nope. we're going to have a chat about it. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, the system is harming everybody. And what we need is practitioners and patients against a system that doesn't support that people. What we don't want is practitioners against patients. Yeah. Well said.
1: That is really well said.
2: Reagan, it's like you've done this before. <laughs> a couple times. <laughs>
0: Uh, it, it, we always ask everybody, are, is there anything that you're excited about, anything cool on the horizon regarding weight stigma? I know there was a, a moment of excitement about the AMA's uh, policy s- statement, but anything else, you know, or or share with us about your work or what are you engaged in right now? Give us a little, give us a little hope for the future, Reagan. Yeah.
2: Could you? So Yeah, so NAFA and Flair have been doing incredible work um, mm-hmm. backed by Dove around getting height and weight as a protected class. um, into legislation. And that is a huge issue because that can help again, both practitioners and patients solve this issue by saying like, we're creating discrimination by not having, um, things that actually accommodate these patients. So I'm excited about that work, incredibly excited about that work. I am, uh, in the middle of a study with Dr. Leslie Owen, where we're looking at the experience of weight stigma and iatrogenic harm in the highest weight patients. Mm -hmm. Often people who are class three, which I think, what are we being called now? I am class three, quote, obese. I think we're severely obese now. Uh, We were morbidly obese for a while. And then we were super obese. And those were Mm. cool times um, because I thought I'd get like a cape and secret Dakota ring, but that never worked out. (laughs) Um, But basically they're often left out of weight stigma work, Mm. studies and research, or we tell our stories of stigma, but we don't link them to actual harm. And so Leslie and I are doing a an analysis of various interviews with folks to see like where is the stigma happening and how is that actually causing harm? And I'm excited about that.
0: That's fantastic.
1: I love it. I feel like New York just passed something too, right? They did, yeah. yeah New York City
2: first and then New York State, it passed the Senate and it's going to assembly in January.
1: And, and what, did, what was that again?
2: So they passed a, a bill, but it doesn't include, the bill that currently as it exists doesn't include healthcare. So that's something that we're, um, looking at and working
0: on. I love I'm it. Pushing. I love it. Uh, Reagan, how can people reach you? What how how can they learn more about what you do and all that?
2: Yeah, so you can find me at weightandhealthcare.com. Mm-hmm. And that's my little Substack newsletter. I talk about this stuff all the time. Um, And then email wise, Reagan, R-A-G-E-N at weightandhealthcare.com. And then you mentioned the the health at every size health sheets. So Mm -hmm. that's H-A-E-S healthsheets.com. And those are diagnosis specific guides to uh, weight neutral care. So you can like literally download high blood pressure and see what are the weight neutral options. There's also a resource and research bank there. So if you're a massive nerd like me and want to dig into the research, you can find a big list to start there.
0: That's wonderful. We love to show our receipts. So, I <laughs> <laughs> you've showed us you've shown me how to show the receipts. So, thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> let's let's not settle for something that's just as good as anything else. Uh, let's certainly not settle for something that's scientifically indefensible. How about we open our minds and think beyond the BMI? Listen to your doctor, friends. <laughs>
1: The amazing music is credited to Skill Cell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guests to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.